0: You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias.
1: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Today, you get just me and Pete. Yeah. Sorry. Maybe, maybe not just.
0: Maybe yeah. it's okay.
1: But we'll, we're going to be. We'll see, I guess. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> we'll Time find will out. tell. Yeah. Good. Well, what are we talking about today, Pete?
0: Yeah. T- we get some questions at Ask Pete on our website. And. We, we went through them, and we just noticed some themes, and we thought we would look at some of those on the topic of, did the Bible get it wrong?
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect, entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good
0: so get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Good topic. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I the answer is yes. Next question. <laughs> the answer is yes. Oh man. And, anything else? Someone's going to gonna sound to... by that. Yeah. Now, so, so we just thought we'd, we'd, you know, look at some of these and, and you know riff on them a little bit. We we don't necessarily have final answers, but I think sometimes even just framing the question differently might help.
1: But- yeah, so these are these are questions that came to us on the website and so they're independent questions, but we found some themes that are, are really around questions around particular passages, and what do we do with this? Does it mean the Bible got it wrong, or how do we need to change how we think about it? And I think maybe we'll get to a little of both of those in
0: some way or another.
1: So, what's our first
0: one? Well, the first one is about the imminent parousia, or parousia, it's pronounced both ways, but it has to do with, like, uh, the presence or the arrival of someone. It's usually a term used for the second coming of Christ. And and the question is, were were the New Testament writers, and were Jesus and the apostles, were they expecting an imminent prophecy? In other words, the end, the second coming is going to come very soon. In other words, they weren't sitting around thinking, well, this could be a while. We could be here for a few thousand years, who knows? Or were they expecting it to be pretty soon? And Well, and when we say it,
1: I just want to be clear because we'll we'll go into some passages. Well, that's the
0: question. What is the it? Yeah, because right. we'll go into yeah. some
1: passages that Jesus seems to be thinking something's coming quickly. Right. And it doesn't seem to be his, his death own. and resurrection. It seems to be something else, the kingdom right. of God, this other yeah. language.
0: Well, what is that passage? Which, which in, is? in
1: Matthew, uh, in Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, there's a few of these passages. Maybe we can just read those to help set the stage yeah. a little bit. So and in, also Mark 13. Yeah, I in think Mark that's 13, pro- starting there, there, in, in verse uh, 30, it is, and if you, in the NIV, you know, there's these headings, and so right before this, it talks about the day and the hour is unknown, and for me, that was all end times right. stuff. But if you back up a few verses, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my ne- words will never pass away. So, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Yeah, And in history, we would have interpreted – the history of interpretation, at least in the last 30 years in my tradition, yeah, like, would have interpreted yeah. this to say the this is about the end times. Yeah, Jesus'
0: return, I guess. That's usually what people – but it's oftentimes what people assume. Yeah, because if you
1: like back that. up, it's talking about these – and I have like these flashbacks to when I was a kid. <laughs> in those days – following distress, that's like pre-tribulation of the end times, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky. And it it was interpreted literally, like these Mm -hmm. things are going to happen, like the stars are going to fall, it's going to be this crazy. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And that's the context. And then Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this generation is not going to pass away until these things have happened. So if you read it carefully, like this person who asked the question... You're kind of like, well, what gives? That generation clearly passed away before Jesus came back. So what do we do with
0: this? Yeah, so it gets us back to what the it is. I mean, and there are a number of passages that sort of talk about something happening pretty soon. And yeah, I mean, this is a little bit different of a passage than some of the others that talk about like the imminent or soon to come appearing or arrival of Jesus. Uh, Because this one probably deals with as other gospels have it too, the, the destruction of the temple, which happened in the year 70. And in, in, we might think like, well, that's not such a big deal. This has to be about Jesus' the second coming. Well, that was a big deal for Judaism. That's like, this is the Babylonian exile sort of happening again with the destruction of the temple. And where is God and what is God saying about God's presence with the children of Abraham? And this was a cataclysmic moment. And and, you know, Jesus is talking about that. So, and, and that symbolizes, you know, the the beginning of a new era, the beginning of a new age. So, in that sense, it's an appearance, right, of the presence of God with the people. So, that that's a little bit different, though, than some of these that sound like, you know, like, Paul, don't get married. <laughs> don't buy life insurance. Just, you know, this could end any minute and it probably will. And the question is, you know, do we sort of take that? Like were they wrong? Do we take that literally? And and I, in my opinion, you know, Jared, jump in here. But I think that we really have to sort of take them at their word here because they. I mean, I I cannot imagine, for example, a Jew who believes the Messiah is in their midst. When the Messiah is in their midst, that means the end is here, and the kingdom is being set up. Now, there's a little problem with the New Testament. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, so where'd he go? Well, he's coming back real soon. Say, but what if, like, any of us happen to die in the meantime? Paul says, they're going to be fine, don't worry about that. And that's th- that the hope is something that's going to happen rather soon. There isn't a hint in the New Testament, in my opinion, of, you know, we could be here for a long time. So, so I think the expectation was something soon pretty soon and 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 I don't blame them because this is part of jewish eschatology it's not it's not like it's not a heavenly existence it's an earthly existence and once the Messiah shows up it's the beginning of the end
1: i I think it's just to back up because I think when we're talking about these collection of Bible verses because this is what we do in in biblical interpretation at least at an everyday level, we sort of have a theory and then we find these verses and we put them all together and they seem to provide this coherent whole. So what I hear you saying is, if we look at a text like uh, Mark chapter 13, that seems to be talking about the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going to be coming. So the it is the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. And then we have these other verses that Jesus mentions, like in Matthew 10 and in Mark 9, where he's, he's talking about an it, but he's talking about it where he says, like in Mark 9, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So Jesus, and in Matthew ten, uses this kingdom, uh, or you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So he uses this Son of Man coming and kingdom of God language. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be a second category, and then right. then you have the New Testament writers like Paul talking about Jesus coming back. So we're really talking about three different it's here, and I think that's important because for a lot of people they may. Their churches or collapse people them have collapse them all together right. into this one big event. Right. So even to say were they wrong or not, we have to figure out exactly what they were talking about. So yeah. with Mark, Jesus seems to be talking about the destruction of the temple, and that did happen right. before that generation passed away. And then the kingdom of God coming in great power, we don't know yet because that, I mean, that's kind of a vague thing to say. And then we have the New Testament talking about Jesus coming back, which is a pretty— practical thing and a concrete thing that we would right, be able to see happen. And so that's what you're speaking to now is Paul's and the other New Testament writers expecting Jesus's imminent return in their lifetime to set up a physical kingdom of God on earth. And when that didn't happen, there's questions.
0: Right, right. And, and the part about, you know, some of you here will not taste death, um... Until you see the Son of Man coming in power. And, you know, I mean, that that could be – I mean, I think it's probably talking about the resurrection faith in the Gospels where that's – you're going to see this. Some of you will see this and, you know. But, you know, does it mean Jesus' second coming? Because if that's the case, then this is like really, really wrong. But it depends on what the it is. It depends on what's being talked about. And so Jesus, you know, is raised, but then he leaves. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So now, what do we do? You know. So well, I'm coming back. Don't worry. Okay. Like when? And and I think what we're seeing maybe is the biblical writers working things out just a little bit on that. And the again, I think it's it's warranted for us to think of that. That would be assumed that this is not going to be a super long period of time. It's you know the Lord is near. It's uh, Philippians four five and, and Romans. Was it what we looked at? Thirteen, 13 uh, yeah, yeah, thirteen, twelve. About you know, salvation is near to us than when we first believed. Well, what's that salvation? Well, it's it's probably the consummation of the kingdom, with the return of the king, as it's supposed to be, right? So you know, there isn't really a notion of the end goal of this is someplace up there. The end goal of this is what's happening right here. The people are suffering and that's – the book of Revelation fits into that. Like people are suffering and the slain lamb of God is on the throne and when is this all going to come to end? Well, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and everything was recreated. Again, a new creation is there and and there's, a, there's like a Jerusalem there and and there's a garden of Eden. It's It's very corporeal and very earthly and that's the way you would think of – the parousia, the, the coming, the appearing, God's presence among you, that's how they would think about it. And so they're, they're looking at it from that point of view. And I mean, there's some people who think that happened, but in a more of a symbolic way. Right. You know? And um, just, you know, there's, there's so many angles to go with this, but I, I think generally speaking, we have here something that didn't come about. Right, it just didn't come about. Well, but it... we understand why they would say that. But the reality takes us beyond the Jewish apocalyptic way of thinking. Because you mentioned in Mark thirteen where the sun and the stars will, you know, drop out of the sky or something. That's apocalyptic. That's not literal mm-hmm. at all. That's apocalyptic language. That means something big is happening. There's a change. There's a, a change of. of um, of regimes of ages, and you talk about that in very sort of well, and even the language you know, of Son of
1: Man, which is yes. Daniel apocalyptic right language,
0: right. Well, <laughs> and it's about the restoration of the kingdom and with the true King on the throne, and and I think that's really the the New Testament eschatology, and we can talk all about like timing and this uh, this uh, the other thing, but that is the that is the overall vision, and that 's the thing what we have to grapple with is that the end goal it hasn't happened. or yeah or, or so In so the therefore way. is that the end goal, or right. is that the the language of the consummation for a a first century Jewish audience this is what meant something to them. And do we have to translate that into other language for who we are? And maybe maybe that's what we have to do. So, it's not a matter of right or wrong so much. It's a matter of context and what's happening in the world and stuff like that. Right.
1: Well, and I, I think we can't underestimate, too. You mentioned the New Testament writers trying to figure it out, how the, the resurrection, it seems, in this context would have been a bit problematic. Because if you're expi- – I mean, we, and we see this in the Gospels – that the disciples, after the resurrection, they kind of, they, well, after after the death, after the resurrection, they don't, it's, yeah, it's, it's confusing. It's yeah. a confusing time. Yeah, what like, this what do means. we do with this? Because we thought it was going to look like a bodily, you're going to be here with us now forever. Right. And then, and that's the resurrection. That's great. But then Jesus ascends.
0: I got to go. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll send the Spirit, right? So. Yeah. And that's why you have Paul, who we could call him the grand interpreter of what that means. He goes, well, it's a two-stage coming. He, he came the first time and he left and he's going to come the second time. So now we're living in the new age. It's sort of inaugurated by Jesus's coming and then resurrection and ascension. But there's a second stage where the the, the New Age is going to be completed and it gets really confusing and it doesn't help that the Dead Sea Scrolls talk about something similar. So all this stuff is mixed up and I just – I mean for me, I just can't stress enough the notion of of trying to understand the Jewish milieu and how that might affect why they talk about ultimate reality the way they do and then the burden is on us to say, what do we do with that?
1: You know, it reminds me a little of the, the episode we had with Megan Henning about – the afterlife, hell, and and that they had these concepts, but it's messy because it's not fully articulated yet. Right. And I think that's similar to what we're doing. It feels like people using metaphors or grabbing things from their tradition mm-hmm. and bringing them forward and trying to grapple with this reality that there's really right. not clear yet systematic thought for. Right. And I think it's important to recognize that because then when we impose systematic thoughts— right. That's what we're doing is imposing system a system onto something that would probably was more fragmented and more improvised in the moment, given the reality of the yeah. Yeah, less structured or something. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: I think Matthias Henze also talked about that a little bit and Jewish apocalyptic expectations. So right. yeah, we'll leave you to that stuff. But you know, that's why, you know, I, I definitely appreciate the question, was it wrong? Well, in a literal sense, yeah, I guess it was. Um, and on the level of meaning and and what would have meant something to the people then, I think this is this is the way you have to talk. When you're talking about ultimate reality, God, you're going to wind up being not precise maybe and not always right. And I, I want to say I think that includes the biblical writers, you know, and I, I think for them to try to work it out is – and that's interesting The the um, – the disciples in the book of Acts when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and they say, is now the time that God's going to deliver the kingdom into our hands? And Jesus basically said, that's up to God. Uh, But it's a stupid question because they still have a mentality that Messiah means taking over Rome, and that's not the case. So, you have those expectations being sort of squashed, but there are new expectations that's really not part of the script and they're trying to deal with it. And mm-hmm. they I, I imagine they could not have imagined Jesus is not coming back in our lifetime. That's why, you know, Paul has this thing about, you know, those who've died, they're going to be raised, and it's going to be okay, they're not going to be forgotten. But it's like a problem that came up that no one, like, had, thought about before until it actually happened then Paul says well it's going to be okay because the expectation
1: was right. no one's going to die because yeah. this is going to happen right away Yeah, and now people are starting to die what What do we do with these
0: people yeah maybe weeks, months, a year or two or three or five but ten goes by fifteen, thirty, fifty and it's like you know um,
1: well, and it, it seems like Paul maybe isn't always on the same page with Paul in some of that too because you know in 1 Corinthians 7 there's it does seem clear that there's this expectation that Jesus' coming is imminent mm-hmm. in the sense that, hey, if you're if you're not married, don't get married. He has this kind of treatise on marriage, and it's mm-hmm. sort of like, hey, just things are going to be done here pretty quick. So right. don't, don't do anything rash, don't do anything big. We're just kind of waiting it out here a little bit, and then that doesn't happen. So things evolve.
0: And so that, that – and which is one reason – not to get off track here, but that's one reason why the pastoral epistles – are oftentimes, you know, understood and typically understood by scholars not to have been written by Paul, but later because there's already a church structure involved. There are bishops and elders. That's like a long haul kind of thing to do where it's like, okay, we may be here for a while. Or John's Gospel where, you know, uh, doubting Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I see. And Jesus says, okay, you would just, you know, touch my side, right? And what do you think now? And he goes, you know, I believe. And blessed are those who you you believe because you've seen blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe that's something to say to people who okay how this is taking a long time here and and all you guys met Jesus and you know him and maybe John you did or whoever but we don't and it's 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 another it's an indication of time that has passed and having to deal with that um unexpected turn of events the length of time, right? So, you know, and I guess it just humanizes this text again. We use that word a lot, right, Jared? It's it's, it's humanizing the text that these are people writing and theologizing and thinking. And, you know, what God is doing seems to be always a few steps beyond what people – the containers we have for God. So – their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just called them bushes, but we got them in last night.
0: And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point.
1: It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact <laughs> instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved
0: the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own
0: path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class
1: faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzouk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu.
1: Well, I think that's a good segue into this next question, which is, you know, how literally do we take a passage like Matthew chapter 27, in verse 52, it talks about more than just, which may be a surprise to some people, mm-hmm. if you haven't read closely, it's not just Jesus who's raised from the dead. Yeah, a whole bunch of people. It's a whole bunch of people that it the text explicitly says, and we're seen by many people. Right. Um, And so that they mentioned Matthew 27, and they mentioned again in, in 1 Samuel, which we'll maybe touch on in a minute, in chapter 28, where we have this uh, person who's a medium or a psychic or I don't – you may know the Hebrew that kind mm-hmm. of fills that out more, but someone who can conjure people from the dead and mm-hmm. so this spirit is raised
0: right. um, from the dead and yeah. Um, yeah. so what do we – Oh, how do the we Bible. These? It's always doing this stuff to us, but I think, you know, the Matthew to me is a little more straightforward and is this meant to be taken literally? No, I think it's meant to be taken symbolically and even saying – and they were seen by many people – That's just the part – that's just like the graphic nature of the storytelling. Again, I don't think we should take that literally as like people were actually dead and walking around. That would have made the news. Somebody would have heard about that. So they were seen by many people. I I just – I can't help but thinking of like walking dead scenes. It's like people with suits hanging off them. But that's not right. But but um, this is typically understood as a – symbolic way of talking about something that Ezekiel talks about in chapter 37, right? The Valley of the Dry Bones. And this is a metaphor because we know that because Ezekiel tells us exactly it's a metaphor for returning from exile. The Valley of the Dry Bones, that's exile, but then their bones are put back together again and they become living, uh, breathing uh, humans. And Ezekiel says, yeah, that symbolizes, you know, Returning to the land after the exile, and a return from exile, I think, is definitely a theme in the Gospels, and and we know this because all of them begin by introducing John the Baptist by referring to Isaiah chapter forty, Wilderness. which is yeah, which is like the return from exile passage. So clearly, this has something to do with returning from exile, but it's a different kind of exile. It's not returning to the land to have a king again. It's 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 a more of a spiritual exile and coming back. Uh, to, uh, you know, communion with God in Christ, and and maybe that that's one way of understanding it. But bringing in Ezekiel 37, it's sort of nice because in Matthew's Gospel, it sort of begins with an exile illusion, and it ends with an exile illusion as well. Like, in other words, Jesus is raised, the exile of Israel is now over. You're really – back in the land now. You haven't been back in the land for a long time because there hasn't been a king. You've had a temple, you've been in the land, but you're not in the land because you don't have the structure set up the way they should be. You need a king. Well, the king's here, the king's been raised. So now, you know, these, the dead come back to life again. And again, if you think of even how Matthew's Gospel begins with that boring genealogy, it's really weird, but it's like three segments of 14 and it goes from Abraham to uh, David, David to the exile and exile to Jesus. And it's really weird to have exile in a genealogy, but that tells us something about the importance of exile thinking for Matthew. So to me, it all sort of hangs together. And to take that literally is the same thing as like taking the genealogy literally, like really three segments of 14. Yeah, it happened and it, to work out that way. And it yeah. doesn't remotely match. It really doesn't remotely uh, match Luke's genealogy in in chapter 3 of Luke. So, you know, it's just the symbolic nature of this stuff is something that we sometimes should just assume and try to work with what's the symbolism of it. And
1: and I think just to further that, you know, Matthew in particular of the Gospels relies heavily on this symbolism, not just of exile, but also of Exodus. Yeah. And it kind of recapitulates the story of Israel throughout Jesus' Uh, story And so if you're reading carefully along in that way and you pick up on all those allusions, which may be difficult if you're not, a f- you know, first or second century Jew who has a tie to some of these um, events and traditions in that way, you may not pick up on it. So that by the time you get to Matthew 27, it just come- feels like it comes out of left field when all along maybe it doesn't if you pick up on some of these. Right.
0: And I think that's an important point because the question we're asking is, did the writer of Matthew's gospel – write that part and say, I hope people take this literally or was this part of the symbolism that he's working with all along? And that's not like a bad question to ask. That's actually trying to understand the nature of the literature and what we have the right to expect from it. So, you know, I'm sure there are other answers to that people give. That's the one that I've always sort of just made complete intuitive sense to me that this is what's happening there.
1: And if we go back to then – First Samuel 28, again, where we have another person being raised from the dead, so to speak, yeah. we, we, can, we can answer that in some ways similarly by asking what purpose does this section have in the larger narrative mm-hmm. of Samuel and what's trying to be – because when I read it, it strikes me as kind of coming out of left field. Right. And so when I read that, I think, well, I think this has a – this is a little bit harder – because it's hard to know with such an old text what what was the author trying to to say. Well, or not just say. just
0: the passage itself. Okay, so Saul is like got a Philistine thing happening there. He wants advice. He goes to God. God doesn't answer him, right? which is important. Which he is goes important. to God. Yeah,
1: and God's the one who doesn't answer uh, Saul.
0: So what does he do? He says, I gotta figure this out. So the witch of Endor conjures up the next best thing. The 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 spirit of Samuel comes up from Sheol. I guess nobody's happy about this, you know. So what are you doing? I was resting. <laughs> yeah, you know, Samuel's he, not
1: happy. He's <laughs> not happy. So
0: he hasn't been happy with kingship since the beginning. In right. 1 Samuel eight, he was very unhappy about kingship. So he sort of begins and ends the story, which he's not a happy fellow about this kingship stuff. So it's interesting Saul.
1: that Saul brings Samuel back of all. People. But, yeah, anyway.
0: well, because he's the one who anointed him king. And, uh, you know, that's the prophet. That's the one who spoke to him from God. That's, that's the one who was with him at the beginning and then abandoned him and with David, you know, so, you know, that's, that's his, like, I got to figure out, he's trying to understand what God wants him to do. That's the thing. And so like, he's not, he's not, you know, I, I guess I'll go consult with Baal, you know, the God right. of the Canaanites. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stick with this. He's actually trying. You know, yeah. Th- and does I think... he know God rejected him? I mean, everybody else knows, but does he really know that? I mean, So,
1: yeah, I think it's interesting that Saul tries multiple ways to get God to hear him. It says, the Lord didn't answer him by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. It's like the guy's trying everything. He's trying to do it the right way. And God just keeps rejecting and rejecting
0: and rejecting. Which, of course, is like the total rejection of Saul. But he's trying the right channels. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know what to do. He says, you know what? I I know people. <laughs> so what, what, <laughs> can do what this would lead you?
1: us then to not read this text literally. What do you think? For me, this rejection by God of Saul is an important point of the story in the larger narrative that's trying to convey we're done with Saul. Saul needs to be uh, recognized for who he is or isn't, uh, and David is the legitimate person here. And so if we read the Samuel narratives... It's not that David is always portrayed in a good light, but it is clear that there is a bit of propaganda going on in some of these narratives. Mm-hmm. And this one's no different. And it seems to play an important role in the narrative transition yeah. uh, for why God rejects Saul mm-hmm. and then David is now the legitimate
0: king. Yeah, I mean, it's it's another sort of nail in his coffin because he's been rejected since the beginning well the middle of the book when when you know he was king for like from first Samuel 9 and then like in chapter 15 it's already it's pretty much over and then chapter 16 is when David is anointed sort of secretly and at that point it says you know this the, the David received the spirit of God but God sent an evil spirit on Saul which some interpret as like some sort of psychosis or something because that's when David, plays the liar and calms him down whenever he has these fits. So, it sounds like he's basically manic depressive or something like that. But um, the fact is, I mean, the switch has already happened Mm -hmm. and it goes on like this for, you know, 10, 12 chapters or more where it's just the story of the rejection of Saul and the clarity of that rejection. And here at the end, I mean, is there a little pathos here? Poor guy. I mean he's he's like he's sort of really trying to do the right thing and God's nowhere to be found and so he takes matters into his own hand and he gets a tongue lashing for that too. So so you know, I guess I mean, if you have to ask me, I would say no, I don't I don't think this is a literal depiction of events. It's, it's
1: not proof for an afterlife, say. Or that people can be raised from the well,
0: dead. yeah, and I think it's typically taken as why you should not engage in necromancy and magic. That's typically how this is taken. And, okay, that's, that's sort of the lesson. But, again, the, the point of this is not a moral lesson for you or a moral right. lesson for me. Or here's proof that this or that happens. Again, the the story nature, the story quality of the Bible is – it's uncontested that doesn't mean things aren't sort of real or historical especially in in like the samuel narratives first and second samuel there's you know there are historical echoes and circumstances people agree with that but that doesn't mean every element of it is is a depiction of time and space reality it could be a vehicle for communicating something of theological truth
1: hi normal people i'm sarah from california And I decided to be a Patreon supporter for this podcast because it helps with my work as a university chaplain. The podcast has resources and conversations I can recommend to people who are asking good questions about the Bible. Recently, Pete posted about reading Genesis with college students, and that was directly helpful for my work. I'm part of the producers group, and just so you know, you're invited too. Just go to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people to learn more about how to get involved. I want to thank these producers who helped make the podcast possible, Justin Brown, Sarah Overly, Mark Sims, Peter and Mary Wall, Leroy Prempa, Fred Anderson, Travis Jantz, and Mark with a C. Now, back to the podcast. Well, I think that's a great way to get into the next question, and maybe you can read it, because all I wrote down here was, was David a man after God's own heart? And we're talking about this passage— uh, from 1 Samuel 28, and a lot of our depiction of David comes from 1 Samuel as well. Um, of right. course, there's other parts as well. Yeah. So, was David a, a man after God's own heart, or how did this... Yeah, the person... question
0: was, I've always struggled with David was a man after God's own heart. Really? David? Do you believe David was a man after God's own heart? And what then, knowing who David was, does that mean? So, I mean, he's alluding to things that David's not a choir boy. You know, he – the whole Bathsheba thing, he was OK, I guess, at times. But, you know, basically coming into power, he – it got away from him pretty quickly. And, you know, he sends messengers to summon Bathsheba, which means she doesn't have a choice. So he's taking – he's using his power. It's technically rape. And uh, has her husband killed to cover up the fact that she's pregnant with his child. Way to go, David. And then two chapters later, David has two sons, Absalom and Amnon, and Tamar is the sister, the full sister of of Absalom. Amnon connivingly rapes her, and uh, ironically, David delivers Tamar. To Amnon, not knowing what was going on, the same way that Bathsheba was delivered to his house. It's very ironic and it just sort of really drives home, like, David, come on, what? You're pretty clueless. But the fact is that, you know, she was raped by Amnon, who then rejects her, and Absalom, the full brother of Tamar, is not happy and is like, uh, Dad, what are you going to do about this? And David just really cried. He lamented and he was sad, but he wouldn't do anything because, quote, he loved. His firstborn son, Amnon, which means I have a covenant obligation to him because he's my firstborn son. I can't do anything. And that starts everything going down the toilet for poor David for the rest of his life. And he dies sort of an old man in his bed, sort of clueless. And th- this is the backstory, I think, behind the question. Like, a man after God's own heart? Are you kidding me? There's no way. So, I mean, what – that's in first Samuel thirteen what does that What does that even mean? I mean Saul's rejected, and god says i, I have somebody else, a man after my own heart, and that's Saul, Samuel goes and anoints him as king. But what does that mean for yeah to and say? I,
1: I like how he the person phrased the question because if that's true, we have to kind of reverse engineer it because yes, kind exactly. of his moral exploits aren't great i always I love going back to the very beginning at least one of the beginnings, David's introduced a few different (laughs) confusing ways here in the text, but in one of them with the David and Goliath story, Mm -hmm. when David's really kind of foisted onto the public scene for the first time. And I love that the first question David asks, which we maybe miss if you don't read it, but carefully, the first question he asks when he gets to, you know, he's bringing his brother some lunch, and he just happens upon this Goliath who's taunting the Israelite army. And we're taught to think like he was really, you know, all about God's honor and that. But the first question he says is, what What do you get out of this? If someone <laughs> right. if someone kills this guy, what's the king going to do for me? Yeah. And they tell him, uh, well, he'll give you a wife. Which and means
0: you'll be in the royal family. You'll be in
1: the royal family. And yeah. so David perks up. And it almost seems as though, because in the very next verse is his oldest brother uh, says, it, it says this, his older brother heard him speaking with the men, you know, asking them, what happens if I kill this guy? What do I get out of it? And this older brother burns with anger and asks, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the wilderness? Kind of like you're abandoning your duty because yeah. you know you're going to get something out of this. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down <laughs> only to watch the battle. And so I, for me, it's just funny because I was taught to read that as like the jealous older brother. Who totally mm. misreads David? Yeah, and then now that I know more about David, I'm like, actually, I think maybe he's telling the truth here. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's he's got clearly David's character is 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 let's say ambiguous at least. <laughs> yeah. and you know after he's confronted by uh, his brother Eliab, I think is his name. Yeah. but um, you know. What, just go back, you know, I, I you're conceivable. Blah, 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 and David goes, what? I was just asking a question. Yeah. It's a typical brother. So, like, what? <laughs> what? I, what do I mean? And then what's the next thing David does? He asks somebody else, tell me again what happens. Right? So, David is, like, not the most upstanding fellow. He's right. not like, the hero. Like, I'm going to kill Goliath. And, I mean, the story is so – it portrays David in this light that – and plus it describes David physically. He's He's ruddy and handsome. Mm-hmm. And that's after God got done saying when when Samuel thought maybe Eliab would be the king that God would anoint. It, it, no, not him. Because you know people look at the outside. God looks at the heart, right? So David's a man after God's own heart. So and and Saul was described physically. So they want a king that looks the part. And so David, well, he clearly doesn't look the part, but he's described physically again in a way that's reminiscent of Saul. So you're reading the story and like, okay. I'm really not sure what kind of a guy I'm dealing with here. And like well, welcome to the story of David. Like you never know what you're dealing with. And he hangs out with Philistines when he's running away. He 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 gets he gets a mercenary army that actually winds up helping Solomon take the throne away from the elder brother Adonijah. It's it's the the stories are so complex. So no, I, I would not look at David as A man after, a person I want to emulate my life. Well, and maybe
1: that's, that's a distinction there, right? Yes. To be a man after God's own heart, we have so much baggage for what we mean by that. That means someone we should emulate, we should model our life after. But that's, I just want to name, that's actually not in the text. That's not what
0: the text says, right?
1: It just says a man, we don't know what that means. And you had a, I just thought maybe you could expound when we were talking earlier, you had a good idea about that in terms of, uh, how kings are portrayed in in terms of how they worship.
0: Yeah, David really doesn't get a negative evaluation. You know, he does a lot of wrong stuff. But as in terms of his kingship, you know, Solomon screws up at the end and pretty much everybody. There there are two kings really that, that almost get a complete um, positive evaluation. And one is David and the other one's Josiah, who was later on. But what unites them both is that Okay, one thing they never did was worship other gods. So they were they were faithful to God, and uh, you know David maybe captured, not meth-
1: maybe not ethically or no morally not ethically faithful no to God, but in terms but of in the terms worship of actual right. worship
0: they didn't wor- they didn't conjure up you know <laughs> <some> <laughs> spirits from Sheol, yeah. um, and and that may be what's going on, and that fits with the general view of of scholars that this is part of what's called the Deuteronomistic history. It's a history of Israel, and everyone's evaluated on the basis of the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy, it has certain rules for what it means to be king, and it's basically teaching the people Torah, which means, and, and being faithful to Torah, primarily the proper worship of God in a specific location, which is Jerusalem. And what David did is he captured Jerusalem. He made it the capital. He didn't build a temple. Solomon did, but he got it going. So David is is somebody who is, from the point of view of the worship of God, faithful. And it's not that God lets him off the hook, so to speak, for the Bathsheba thing, although he sort of does. I mean, their child hangs on for a week and then dies, and then Solomon is the next one. So, okay, the child died, but David, you murdered somebody basically. You raped and you murdered and what's going on. And that is without question for us. We should be bothered by that. We should what is going on here? And is God like that? That's really the question. Forget David. Is God like that who sort of condones us? And in again, in my opinion, and chime in here if you agree or disagree, Jared, but this is part of I think the nature of this literature that it's really not about moral lessons for us to learn. It's about the struggles of kingship and what does God think of kingship. And those views change in Israel. They, they're not always the same. Sometimes God's very pro, sometimes he's very against, and by the end of it, he's pretty sick of it.
1: Well, I think it's a complicated question because complicated. when you say that's not what it is – I think we have to kind of splice that out. Like mm-hmm. are we talking about the context in which it was – it wasn't written to be a moral guide in that way. Mm-hmm. We now in a lot of churches and a lot of contexts and traditions use it that way. And I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that's necessarily wrong or bad. Right. But I think without respecting that that wasn't the original intent, it's very easy to get into predicaments you don't want to be in.
0: Yeah, and I, that is an important point because when, when – let's say churches read these stories for their own moral guidance, that's something people have been doing for a very long, I mean, since literally before Christianity. And I I actually, I'm not against that, right? I'm not saying you should never do that, but I'm saying be careful how you get your moral lessons. You need, also need to sort of struggle with these texts, not just, well, this, it's, it's there, we just have to do it. I think we have to struggle with these texts and sort of make them our own. The biblical warrant for that, if I can put it this way, is the book of 1 Chronicles, which rewrites David's story completely. It and, and basically, David does nothing wrong there, right? And and that's David's take on the fact that, okay, this story, the way it's told, doesn't serve the people here, so let's look at it differently. So, um, and that, you know, Chronicles is written probably at least two, three hundred years, even as much uh, uh, after the time of when maybe First Samuel was written. And it's a different take as times have changed, and people are looking to these stories for hope for the future. Um, as opposed to maybe looking at these stories as God's critique of kingship, right?
1: To explain why we're in the mess, right? And then later, the mess to being explain, exile, right? A, right. Yeah, exile, uh, and
0: then Chronicles post exilic, and and again, that's you know looking at context. Actually, I think also helps us do theology. It helps us think of how these stories can and be engaged by us in in the life that we live. And that's a complicated issue. That's why I don't want to get into like, here's the right way to read this story, but But at the very least, what I'm
1: hearing is there needs to be respect given, like, I do think it's it is, it's troubling to talk about being a man after God's own heart, David without reading just what the text says about what David was involved in and what David was mm-hmm. doing. Right. So, there is probably a, an an ethically better way of getting morals and values from Samuel yeah. than unequivocally baptizing David as the greatest thing ever and we just emulate exactly how he behaved. Right. like that. No matter how you slice it, that seems like maybe a problematic way of right. doing it.
0: And, and I mean, yes. And I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, we recently had a guest on Miguel uh, de la Torre who talked about how people in different contexts hear text. You know, I've, I have female students and we go about this and like, what do you mean he's a man of a God's own heart? He raped a woman. And then he allowed another rape to go unpunished. I can't deal with this. Well, okay. It's, it's not a good reading of the text that ignores that and doesn't take into account how listeners are hearing a text like that today. And so we're in the struggle of biblical interpretation of like really engaging texts and interrogating texts, so to speak, and really taking them seriously enough to wrestle with them and not just, well, here it is. That's just the way it is. These, These texts as moral texts are deeply problematic for people and people have known that since forever, which is why they do all sorts of interesting things with them because the text itself doesn't cut it. So you have to do something to the text, which First Chronicles does, by the way. You have to do something to it to make it join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel any time ends Friday May 10th see home club for details
1: right and where and I think because this this goes in maybe to the final question that would be good to to um, talk about some is is we had a, a question which we don't need to get into fully but it talked about right and wrong interpretation you know is context and history absolute and I think it's it's more of you know there's this uh There's this idea of a polarity. Maybe you can look it up if you haven't, but it's this idea that we can't come down on one side or the other. We're always moving between these two different poles. On the one hand, we do have how we respect a text. I mean, we have to understand that this was socially constructed in a particular time and place, and we have to respect it and understand it. Just like any good relationship, we have to understand the person we're communicating with, but that doesn't mean it's all one-sided we also are in a particular time and place. And we also bring our own baggage and our own ethics and morals and filters to the text. And it's not to say biblical interpretation is right or wrong if you exclude one or the other of those. It's how we wisely discern between the two.
0: Yeah. And people have talked about the two horizons of the past, the ancient horizon and the contemporary horizon. And there really is a conversation between those two. And it's and it's so much more interesting and so much more complicated than just, well, just do what it says. Just what does it say? And it's an it and it's sort of there. And it's just up to you to grab it. Who we are affects everything about how we read these things. And it, even to the – we don't know it always, but it's there.
1: I, I also find it fascinating that when we acknowledge that we interpret, we actually learn more about what the text actually says. Because, for for instance, I would have been taught, you know, you just – just do what the Bible says. And it says David was a man after God's own heart. You just Mm -hmm. do what it says. But once you recognize that you come from a context and that you're interpreting that, now when I go back, I actually read the Bible more carefully. Mm -hmm. I read it more on its own terms, and I see things that's now going to impact that new filter I put on it.
0: So, you're, you're putting your own, you're becoming aware of, let's say, your bias, and you're able to sort of move it to the side right, right so right. some would say that's just a mature reading you know mm-hmm. it's becoming self-aware and that's i mean that's truly you know people throw around a term like reading the bible critically and a lot of what critical means is you're not the center of the universe your questions your answers your assumptions are not the center you have to put those to the side and that's why critical biblical scholarship ideally what it means is like I want to get into the head of this ancient time and understand what's going on so that I can maybe think differently about it today. And And that's really what's behind it. And that's what we're talking about here. You know, it's critical reading.
1: As long as – because I do think there's a tendency to then exclude other ways of reading it too or even reading, say, devotionally or for the average person. Mm-hmm. So it could become elitist in the sense of, well, I get into the head of the ancient – Right. Author. And so right. you're you know, my grandmother's reading is just completely wrong and how can mm-hmm. you and I think we want to avoid that extreme too.
0: Yeah, I think there are I mean, it it's a little simplistic, but I, I think in terms of different levels of reading, like if and I don't mean higher or lower, I just mean different different rooms you walk into. And a lot of what we talk about here at the Bible for Normal People really is sort of that historical room. It's like, what do these texts mean? And when you're asking that kind of a question, you don't read your own situation into it. You try not to. If you're reading it for, let's say, a spiritual nurturing or sustenance or like an immediate communion with God, Lectio Divina Divina, and just devotional readings – where you're not trying to analyze the text, it becomes like a means of grace to commune with God. That's a totally different thing. That the the Bible works like that, and it always has, and it always will. But if you have a historical consciousness, you ask different kinds of questions. The trick is to. It's almost like sometimes you have to turn things on and off. Right? right? Like to turn that's off the, the historical trick. analysis and mm-hmm. move to something else. Yeah, that that's definitely a problem. But that's a problem of the modern period. We can't be ahistorical. historical. We're too oriented toward like researching and studying the past, because there's been a lot of past. So that's that's a part of our reality that we have to struggle with. But
1: yeah, it, I think of it some ways, and this may be not a great analogy, but I've been recently thinking of, of metaphors with science where you have kind of the pure science of how does this thing function and we isolate the particle, the wave, how it works. Then you have applied science, and how does, this, how does this technology or this scientific phenomenon now get applied to make things, make technologies, make products, make these kinds of things? And one's more practical and one's more pure, and we have to make sure that we're playing well between those two. And in some contexts, this is the appropriate methodology, because of what we're trying to do with it. And in others, this is the appropriate methodology. And I just think it's important that we don't overprivilege, because I've seen some people who would be kind of anti-intellectual and say, well, that historical, critical stuff, that's just actually getting in the way of the real connection with God. Mm -hmm. And then other people who would look down on devotional readings and saying, oh, you're not really getting to what the Bible's all about. To do that, you have to read. All these books, and you know, read Greek and read Hebrew, and that's what the Bible is really about. And I think they're both, yeah, like you said, it, it, we make a hierarchy rather than seeing them as different rooms with different purposes and different
0: functions. Well, you know what the Bible is really about. I mean, I um, just to echo James Kugel, my my doctoral advisor, who said, well, what it's really about is exactly accessing it for personal benefit, because if you otherwise it would not have continued. It, you actually wouldn't have a Bible. If all you're interested in is antiquity and understanding the original context or something, because when the context changes, it's irrelevant. It becomes a relic. And who cares about a relic? It has to always be, you know, the fancy term, recontextualized. It has always has to be brought into the world of the reader and you have that conversation. And without that impulse, you actually, there's no impetus to create a Bible. You don't, there's no need for it. There's no need to sort of have this sacred text you're going to lean on. And so, yeah, that's, that's – the, they're ironies, their are paradoxes here, you know? It's right. like the, the, the history, the, the – you know. I want to know what Jesus is trying to say here. I want to understand what Paul means by this. I want to understand what the psalm is saying. And that's the struggle that we have. But on the other hand, we, we have to somehow find a way to come to peace. I have no trick for this, but to come to peace with that and the fact that regardless of what you come up with, the fact is that you live in a different moment and different time, and God has to be as alive for you as God was for these biblical writers. We can't just lean on them. It has to be something different. So right. It's almost triangulating. There has to be a, little... a subjective <laughs> element, and yeah. that's
1: actually important, not something to
0: eschew it's, or do it's away with. It's inevitable. Right. It's unavoidable. It is who we are, right? So the mm-hmm. myth of objectivity, we can't get at the original meaning, but we get to struggle with our horizon and with theirs. Yep. And, well, how do you know if you have the right answer? All right, here we go. You don't. and that's, What if that's okay? What if the multiplicity of, of interpretations, you know, within certain boundaries, which we won't get into now, but maybe, you know, th- that kind of thing is, is basically the history of theology and the history of the church. It's just the way it's always been.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm, what I'm coming to as uh, we finish up here is we're four seasons in and we're still asking the same two questions. Yeah. What is the Bible?
0: What do we do with it? And what's Jared's deal?
1: <laughs> that's the that's the third question you ask under your breath. Well, at that's the end yeah, of the interview. when i
0: driving home. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and that's – those questions I th- I think we'll keep asking them and the rest of the fourth season and maybe the fifth. Well, and, and <laughs> maybe just to tie into
1: what you just said, if we're still frustrated that we haven't come to an answer, perhaps we're, we're missing the point.
0: Right. It's yeah. like
1: saying – it's like going to the gym and saying, "Like, when are you like perfectly strong?" <laughs> right. It's so that you can. When stop can going you to be done? Yeah. yeah it, you don't. When,
0: when you eat, eating healthy, I can't stop eating now. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, a, right. it's a
1: lifelong exercise to stay sharp right. and stay right. wise and discerning mm-hmm. about being grounded in a tradition while also having to live in a real context today.
0: Right. And being comfortable. I mean, switching the metaphors a bit, but being comfortable with, I used to like in the Bible know the truth. And now it's getting weird. So how can I know the truth again? Well, the the point of the journey might be that's a question you don't ask in the same way. You might ask it differently. Or uh, just the nature of truth changes for you. I know you've got some thoughts on truth, mm-hmm. but different levels and different ways. We even did a podcast on this. I did. So uh, and you got a book coming out. I do. In some time. Like yeah. in a few months, whenever Yeah. So so yeah, I mean it's 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 the, the the struggle of interpreting the text and w- within our context, it just raises all sorts of actually possibilities and not just, oh, no, what do I do? It's like, okay, listen, this is – it's more complicated than I thought. Okay, I'm, I'm aware of that. So, you can relax a little bit and as you're trying to read this stuff and, and not feel like we have to sort of get back to that level of, of, of a certainty where like everything has to make sense because we have the Bible. It's – if that were the case, people would have figured this out a long time ago. There would right. be no seminaries, no yeshivas, no Bible colleges or anything like that. It's like we were just like
1: – Yeah, maybe it's yeah. not a, a, a map to the one trail that gets us there, but it's it gives you a toolkit to kind of make your own path.
0: Yeah, Right. Yeah. Good.
1: All right. All well, right. Thanks so much for joining us again for another episode of us asking the same two questions mm-hmm. that continue to be the gift that keeps on giving, I yeah, think. Absolutely.
0: And speaking of that, uh, wash your hands, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about that before, too. <laughs> yeah, we're in the midst of it here, so. I, ho- I hope the day comes pretty soon where people won't understand that joke anymore. Yes, I hope so, you too. Know, I like hope it becomes really, irrelevant Really real quickly and just becomes a dumb thing to say. So. Yeah. Anyway. All right, folks. See ya. See ya. And folks, in closing, just a reminder, we are going to our summer schedule starting this week, which means our episodes will be airing every other week instead of every week. It'll be okay. Don't don't cry about it too much. You know, I'm sure you can find things to do in the summer, right? Well, so can we. So every other week starting now, and we'll be picking it up week by week again in the beginning of September. All right, folks. See ya.